Welcome to the Coming Home Well podcast, the show that educates, supports, and advocates for the veteran community. Your host, Dr. Tyler Piron, U.S. Army retired, will bring you exciting conversations with amazing guests about resources, research, and military history, all geared to helping our warriors to come home well. Here's your host, Dr. Tyler Piron. Welcome back to Coming Home Well. I'm your host, Tyler Piron. And today, as we are starting to go towards the warmer weather, we're going to talk about golf. Now, I like to golf. I I like riding on carts. I like uh, running across the beer cart and hanging out with my buddies. And it's a lot of fun. I don't play nearly as often as I should, but it's sometimes a little difficult to get out there. And it's especially more difficult if you don't have people to play with on a regular basis. So we are going to be talking with Matt McDonald. He is the founder, chief executive director, and pretty much doing everything over at Next 18. I'm sure he's got a team as well of folks out there. But Matt has formed this organization, and it's pretty cool. And I'm not going to speak for him, but I think it's a love of the game and a love of being able to share it with veterans, which are the two things that I really care about. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Matt, I know you were in the Army for a minute. What did you do and how did you get here? So I was in the Army from early 2011 to late 2015. I was with the 173rd Airborne Infantry. I deployed to Afghanistan in a combat role from uh, 12 to 13. And I joined a little late for that the average soldier, I joined up 25 or 26. So that was the military. You're right. It was a hot minute. And so when I joined the military out of life, seemed, life was really good. I, I live in Wisconsin. I'm originally from uh, Michigan and I had a really good life. I, I come from a pretty well-off family, not a lot of military per se in my immediate family. I didn't have a lot of military exposure. I just, as I was going through my early twenties, realizing the life that I'm leading and the people that are around me, while it is great and I'm having amazing opportunities in life, there's something that is just missing. And the, the older I've gotten and the more retrospection and looking back on things, I think the people that were around me maybe just were missing some of the inherent things that I needed from the closest people in my life. And I I just finished my associate's degree after I think seven years in college. So I feel you. I understand that. So I'm I'm thinking, all right, this is probably at at 25 or 26, the the furthest this is going to go. College isn't for me. I really wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I had this perception. I had traveled a little bit, but nothing like Eastern hemisphere or anything like that. And I broke up with a a girl at the time. It was maybe like the closest thing I had to a semi-serious relationship up until that point. I just, one day, just, I don't know what got me on the path, but I I said, I I can do this. I can do what I'm seeing on TV, what it takes to be these people. And it seems like this group, this group of people does this thing and has these inherent traits that are somewhere in me that I, maybe I don't even know they're still there or they are there, but I think they're there. And so I did the whole process. I I was delayed deployment because this was in 2011. We were ramping things up and there were so many soldiers or so many civilians going in that I was like six months out. And I remember people, those close friends, right? You're not going to go. You got six months, you signed up, but you know, you didn't really sign up. My family, my immediate family was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then you got the mom. I'm an only child. So what did I, what did I do as a mother to send you down this path to make me feel this bad? Oh, I didn't know it was about you. Uh, Okay. Got it. I went to basic training. I went in, I wanted at the time, the 18 X program was really ramping up. It's the program that as long as you have an associate degree and you're over, I think 22, you are able to go to basic training as an infantryman. And from basic training, if you get through that, you go to airborne school. From airborne school, you go to Fort Bragg and you start 
like this prep course for three weeks, which leads you into SFAS, which is selection, the three-week course. For anyone that's ever seen BUDS, it's like the Army's version of BUDS. And I'm sure some Navy SEAL somewhere is going to be like, it's not the same. It's close enough. I started going through that program. I spent the first seven months of my career basically training, training, best shape of my life, mentally, physically, like four days before selection was going to be done, I blew out my knee in a land nav exercise in the middle of the night. That was the first time defeat hit me in the army. And it was like, okay, well, now I know why the attrition rate in this program is like 98%. But now the army has a 25-year-old, well-trained, well-fit airborne infantryman to go plus up the 173rd or the 82nd. I was the only single guy in my group, in my like class that was medically dropped. Everyone else withdrew or voluntarily. They all got sent to Korea. I went to Germany. I went to Germany as a single soldier at 26. And I was like, I'm going to get to travel the world. Perfect. I spent three years in Germany, loved every minute of it as a single guy. It was fantastic. I, I, other than being deployed all the time, that was that put a damper on those things. I was constantly moving. But when I was home, I was in Paris. I was in the Netherlands. I was in Belgium. You hop on the train, boom, you're in seeing the sights. Yeah, it's so cool that that portion of the military and that whole realm allowed me to see what the world looks like. I got to see so many different perspectives. I, You were more on the Western side. I went Mediterranean the whole time. Every chance I got, different country. I wanted warm. I wanted beaches. That's all I wanted. So six months into my unit, we deployed, pretty combat intensive. Six months in, I suffered another leg injury on deployment. Effectively, I was pulled off of the line for the last three months. And I won't get into too much about what I did, but they moved me into a logistics counter intel position in our small little JSS. And I really thrived at it. I learned a lot of skills through that. Two and a half years later, I was out of the army, medically retired. When I got back from deployment, a lot of us were suffering. Our our first sergeant and I believe our two platoon sergeants that were with us were all just from like Ranger cadre. So, and with where we were with 191 CAV, we were in a CAV unit. We were the only infantry platoon or troop in five troops that were all calves. So we were like the bastard children. Headed step children. Yeah. Yep. Hey, who's available for a detail? Yep. Hey, who's going to be the dismounted patrol and go to the most austere location for this deployment? You are. That's right. That's how that works. I, I loved it. I loved that I was an automatic, an LMG gunner. I, I think I thrived at it. Being a little bit older as an E3 and then getting early promoted to an E4 while we were deployed, it worked for me. I loved it. I loved it. We just dealt with a lot of blast exposure. Carrying the LMG is not conducive when you're firing 800 rounds and people are like, why do you have tinnitus? Well, that's probably it. Why don't you wear ear pro? Okay. I'm not even going to engage that subject. So everybody wants to carry the 249 until it's time to carry the 249. Or the 240. Mark 48. So okay. we had the new version of the 249, which I loved it. I felt safe with that thing. But they get heavy very quickly. Yeah, and the bullets are heavier too. So, yeah. so we all come back from our deployment and we dealt with enough trauma and what I will get into later, learning since I've been out, moral injury, that I'm done. I, my body was, I wasn't young. My body was telling me, you can't do this anymore. And the, the physical and emotional, not sleeping, everything. I started seeing providers at, at Launchstuhl in Germany at the TBI clinic. And before I knew it, 14 months later, I was you know medically retired. I spent the last 12 months in a WTU. And now here we are. It's been, it's been just over six years since I've been out. You got out. You're having some issues. What'd you do next? Here's the thing though. I didn't think I was having issues because when I got out, I had a plan. I was going to use almost all of the resources that the military had put in my hands. And I moved to a pretty affluent area back home in Wisconsin. I started a lawn and snow company within two months. 
I was happily married. We had a new house, an old house that was new for us that we had to renovate. And I was now at the point while I was in the WTU started knocking out a bachelor's degree. So I was now finishing the bachelor's degree and within 18 months being back already pursuing an MBA. I thought I was doing everything right. Where I, where my artificial hurdle and barrier came in, right before I got out, I was put on diet Ambien. And I think we started at five milligrams. We'll start there. When I got out within six months, my mental health provider at the VA had me on the diazepam. And now my dentist at the VA prescribed uh, diazepam. So it's Valium, right? Yeah. I didn't know that it was Valium. I, there was so, I want to say now it's emotional numbing because I was loading my plate with a million things at once, but there was so much going on that I was like, I'm going in the right direction. So, Oh, you want me to take a pill? Okay. It's just like in the army, right? Take this pill. Okay, cool. I can keep doing my job. It turned me into a zombie and I, I didn't know because in hindsight, you're so mentally fogged and chemically just changed that as this lawn and snow company was like rapidly expanding, I think in mid 18, one of my providers at the VA approached me. And I think that's when they started realizing the benzos were as bad as they are. And he said, diazepam is really bad. We're, I think the VA is starting to make this push or some providers are making the push to get us off you off of them. So let's do that. And even in the moment, I didn't even know how big of a deal that was because I had never taken medic- medication as a child. Like that substance abuse world just didn't exist to me. And I said, okay, what do I have to do? Go talk to your dentist. You see what he wants to do. The advice that I got from these two providers was that I could take both now at this point, I'm taking 20 milligrams and now we're four years into some of these meds, right? That is four times the recommended dose. And I'm taking both every day while still being highly functioning. Take a half a dose of each for two weeks and stop cold turkey. I'm going to ask you how you think that turned out. I can tell you, I know that's not going to turn out well because I used to be a drug and alcohol counselor for a period of time. And I learned that you can do a lot of things. You can smoke weed every day, no problem. You quit, it's no problem. Alcohol and Valium will kill you if you go straight, if you're at such an addicted level, if you go cold turkey, those are the two that kill you from stopping. Like heroin, you wish you were dead, but you're not gonna die. Valium and those benzodiazepines and alcohol, those two depressants, will get you dead. Now, you'll also have all sorts of other problems, but those are the ones that'll kill you. Those are very serious drugs. Yeah. 14 days in the cold turkey, <coughs> middle of the week, I'm trying, my my wife is, she's at work now. She's already gone to work. I've got eight or nine employees in my driveway now because we're that's how quickly we've grown. I've got three crews that I'm operating and... <coughs> We're still bootstrapping. So I'm, I'm running everything from the home. I've got four trucks, every, all the equipment's in the yard, in the driveway, in the garage. And I couldn't get down my stairs to go outside. I felt drunk. I, I couldn't think straight. The, the routes that I had done the night before, I couldn't even read. I remember the night before my wife was sitting at the table and we were like doing like a HelloFresh recipe. And I couldn't, I was like, who wrote this? It looks like someone who doesn't know how to write wrote this because the words are all messed up. And she looked at it and she's like, what are you talking about? The water tasted weird the night before. So I wake up and I'm so impaired. I go out, I give the stuff to my one of my crew leaders. I come back in. And when I walk in the house, I think, man, something is so off right now that you're, you, I don't feel like I have control of my body or my brain. And I said, I, my brain told myself, I think you need to go lock your gun. And that even now I'm two years removed from that. It's still hard to say that sentence because it's, I'm doing all the right things. This shouldn't even be part of this equation. 
And it's not like you're going getting street drugs or it's, hey, you're just doing what the doctors told you to do. And your comments about alcohol, I rarely drink. So that was like, did I drink that? No, I, I maybe have a drink a week, maybe. So I go up to my room, my, my Walther PPS is right next to the bed and I pick it up. And as I'm going to put the lock on it for a second, I turn it right barrel pointing towards you. I'm in so much pain that all I'm thinking of is, is this the new norm? Is this the only, is this pain permanent? What is going on? And I thought for a second, like, maybe this is, maybe if I just do this, I'll be, it'll be over with. And I don't have to deal with this pain. Got through it, locked it, took the keys out to the other crew leader who was also a vet. And I handed them to him. And I remember him looking at me and distinctly saying, what? That's all he said. What? And I I just looked at him in macho moment. Don't worry about it. Just take these. I'm going to go in the house. When I walked in the house, I fell to the ground and broke down crying. Because it, it, the door shut, I was safe, it hit me. And I was like, I think I almost just killed myself. Where the heck did that come from? Called one of my TBI doctors in Germany, who I was really close with, Sarah. I think now she's working at the VA on the East Coast. She was one of the pioneers with TBI and like soft guys. So she had a lot of experience with it back in that time period. And I was crying when I was talking to her and she couldn't understand. And she said, hold on, let's back up. What's going on? And I, I said, I'm, I think I almost just killed myself. I, I don't know what's going on. That's not you. Give me more of the equation. Are, are you on any meds? I said, no, I'm, I'm coming off. And she said, what are you coming off of? And what was the plan? And I told her and she was like, go get a diazepam, take the full pill, And I'm going to stay on the phone with you. She said, I think you're going through severe withdrawals. That was the first time I'd ever heard that word too. 10 minutes later, I was back to normal or pilled met it up. Right. You're back to your old normal that you've been operating at at four years, which is normal operating. Yeah. It took 18 months with two doctors outside of the VA, one of which is still now my psychologist. He's a a Vietnam era veteran. Incrementally, half milligram by half milligram every three weeks, up and down, right? Evening out, adjusting, withdrawal, just kept doing that for almost two years to get off of them. And even when I stopped taking those last slivers of pills, I look back on that period of my life and there are almost two and a half years that I don't remember. So I think it, even when I stopped and there was no physical pill going in my body, it probably took six months for the half-life for these chemicals to exit my system. And for your brain to get rewired back to normal without medication. That's that's super common. Uh, I've seen it, especially with chronic alcoholics, which there's a lot of similar pathways. And they call it learning drunk. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, I know how to do it when I'm drunk. But if you ask me how to do it now that I'm sober, I don't know how to do this thing that I've known how to do for years, the skill and the practice and just the whatever it is. And they're like, I don't know how to do it. And I was like, really? And they would explain, yeah, I had to relearn how to do this thing that I do. Like I'm a woodworker or whatever. Like I couldn't figure it out. And I'm like, but if I was drunk, I knew how to do it perfectly. It's the same sort of stuff. So it's not, you're not bad. You're not, you're pretty common actually. I know. And when you make the comment about stopping as lethal, and then you start doing the research about what cold Turkey from that amount of diazepam can do to you. Yeah. I wake up sometimes and I think, how am I still here? Yeah. Which ultimately leads into next 18. But as this was happening, And this is where all of the roadblocks and barriers that shouldn't have been there came. I didn't have the resources. I didn't, this was all done on my own other than with these two providers. And it was very loose. It was checking in every couple of weeks and, or every other week. And we'd have a session and we'd talk and, okay, I think you're good. You can write. So it was very much me doing all of this on my own. And in the meantime, my spouse, this was not what she wanted. This was not the world she had signed up for. 
she didn't have any resources either. So that ended my, I had to sell the business because eight months into going through the withdrawals and the titration, it was like, all right, you're, you are so razor thin right now on just all of what you're dealing with mentally, physically, emotionally, you can't take care of this business. I I had, I had 300 clients every week, clients, people in the community, literally that lived some of them. I had six neighbors that we were cutting the grass for and doing snow for like immediate neighbors. So everywhere I went clients and clients have needs. Well, this may have been my first foray into like self-care before I even knew about it. I had to make the conscious decision of either you sell this business or you're probably going to die. It's just, I was starting to have health issues. I was like severe anxiety. And so the business got sold in mid 19. I somehow finished my MBA still. So I'm going through withdrawals, getting a master's degree. And now we're into the end of 19 and the winter comes through and I'm thinking, all right, well, what do I want to do? I'm still titrating. I reached out to Semper Fi Fund because they had been put in touch with me through the WTU when I was still active duty because of my disability rating and everything. And early on, the dogs we've talked about, they got me a service dog. They paid for all the training. They paid for my dog, Loki. They still support Loki with medical bills. I know we're on here talking about next 18, but I will to the, for the rest of my life, I will be so grateful to Semper Fi. And I have a very close relationship with a lot of them still. But anyways, these are the great organizations that we highlight because of your story and the stories of so many others. That is exactly why we exist is to shine the light on these groups and these organizations. And sometimes these people that are making these world changing life-changing experiences for these veterans. And if you don't know about it, when you need it, like you were lucky or happenstance, but you did the right thing and reached out and you're working with them at the time you needed them, where would you be without them? And that's always the question. Probably dead. Honestly, that's the reality. Yeah. Um, So that's why I always think it's so important. (laughs) Yeah. It's a great organization. I reach out to them because I keep getting these emails and I've always been blowing them off because golf now starts to come in the picture because I've been playing golf since I was six or seven years old. I played in high school. I played in college briefly. I've always been, I hate to say I'm good, right? Because I can shoot par. I can go out and shoot par on 18 holes, but I don't play consistently enough anymore to be like, oh, I'm going to go play on the Corn Ferry Tour. So I know where I sit on the totem pole of golf. I can go out and do the corporate thing and be like, Ooh, he's really good, but I'm not going to win a tournament. So I didn't play golf in the military for five years because you were in Germany. There's not many courses and most of them are really expensive and they're private. Or they're trash if they're on a base. (laughs) Or you're (laughs) too busy with rotations that you just don't even bring your clubs. Then when you get out of the military, when I got out those four years of this business and adjustment and life, Hey, you want to emotionally numb a little bit. Let's get rid of all those things you enjoyed when you were younger. And I need to stay busy. I don't have time because I'm a fixer and selfless service. It's about everyone else and my clients and and not my problems. So I didn't play golf for nine years. I picked up the clubs when I went to Semper Fi's camp in late 2019 in Denver. And I remember going to that camp in the middle of my withdrawals. And I walk into a group of like 20 vets and immediately I'm like, Nope, this is not for me. I'm not, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for what they were going to do, but I was already there. One of a fellow vet that I had, touched base with through EBV entrepreneurship bootcamp for vets. He was also there because he lived in Denver. So we were able to like interact and I, I just, I stuck with it. I stuck with it. I, I ended up having a really good time and I left that and came home 
And all I wanted to do in 20 now was, well, I'm financially okay. I've sold a business. I'm done with my master's. I don't really have anything going on. I just want to work at a golf course. That's what I'm going to do. So I literally went to a nice, nicer course out here, Fire Ridge and Grafton. And I said, Hey, I, I will literally clean carts two days a week. I just want to be able to golf for free. <laughs> so I ended up. In I, I feel you, man. Cause I did yeah. that in high school. That's, I worked at a golf course just so I could go play as much as I want for free. How can I make this work for me? I worked at golf courses when I was younger. How can I make this work for me so that a I'm out of the house, I'm in nature, I'm able to do something I love. I don't have to pay for it. And I can make a little money on the side. Well, there you go. Cool. I'll go work at a course. I think I played 120 to 130 rounds of golf in 2020. I got to know the owners, everyone there within two shifts. They pulled me out from outside as like a cart attendant. And I was in the pro shop, like opening and closing the golf course and helping with that. And I didn't know when I first went there that there were a lot of vets that were members there. And through that experience, you know, I started seeing like, I like what Semper Fi Fund does with their adaptive sports camps, recovery through sport. But then I started thinking, and I've always been someone who looks at something and thinks, how can I improve on it? Or what can I do? That's just how the brain for me is wired. It's like a rebel, like a maverick, like... If hundred people tell me we've been doing this for hundred years, I'm going to be the one that says, but why can we do it this way? So I started thinking, well, let's go back to what happened to me. I was doing everything right. I was high achieving in my mind. I was not the typical vet that we don't want to be. I still ran into problems. If this is happening to me, like the light went on, right? The whole, hey, if something doesn't happen to me, I can't have empathy for it because I've met, right? Like the conversation we were having before this, that happened for me. And it was, all right, you're an outspoken, you're a go-getter, all of these things you've learned from owning a business, from this, from all of these aspects of your life, maybe you can do what Semper Fi Fund does in a more niche market and use your passion of golf and create a golf camp like they do. But instead of being a veteran nonprofit, let's have the focus be mental health and let's set up as a mental health nonprofit. And we use the sport of golf to get the vets and first responders because there are so many commonalities that I've learned just it's in the last. It's all the same stuff. It's yeah, all it the is. same. It is. And I said to myself, this is it. This is it. <laughs> now, how do I execute this thing? And this was early 20. So I started thinking like, okay, what if I do this thing and I set up these camps or sorry, now we're into 2021. And I've been thinking about this for a year. I'm trying to figure out the direction of what this thing looks like. I still don't have the name. I still don't have the idea, like the full idea. I go to a couple more camps with Semper Fi Fun, uh, Challenge Aspen, Camo out in Colorado. Now I'm starting to watch, okay. How do these other organizations do these camps? What does this look like? So what now I'm looking, how do you yeah. want to make your own? Yep. So I'm watching them and they're, they're all amazing, but they're not giving those resources or one of them, one of them did. And I'm not going to say who, cause I don't want to disparage any of these organizations because they're all amazing. This is well, different. I mean, the focus is different yeah. and that's because that's them and we're over here. And it was, we went skiing and we were supposed to the first night have a module on yoga, but the part the woman who was doing the, the module couldn't be there. The audio was really choppy. She was doing zoom from like South America. She was on vacation. But the crazy thing that I'm thinking as I'm watching this is like, it's seven o'clock. We all just went skiing for the first day for nine hours. You're going to put me in a yoga position. I know yoga. As soon as we get into anything that's remotely comfortable, lights out because I'm done. I'm burned right. out. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. And that was the only module that they touched on, but they didn't even do it. So that got the brain going about, okay, if I'm going to do this mental health thing, it's going to be front and center and it is going to be the priority. Because we're all here. We're all at the camp. We finally are here. 
give us the resources so that when we leave here, now we've got a Swiss army knife of five or six tools. So we put together, I started to put together the board. I started to started to do the whole nonprofit thing, right? With the 501c3, piecemealing this together. Luckily, that golf course, Fire Ridge, they let me run two camps almost free of charge. I literally just had to pay for food for these participants. We had 21 participants come through the two camps last September and October. It was four-day camps. And basically, what we did with the early model was just we had two hours of lessons from PGA pros that donated their time in the area in the morning. Then we did an hour and a half of mental health training. So we did moral injury. That was like watching 10 people learn about moral injury for the first time on the first day of the camp and like actually process and dump some stuff without knowing everyone. Yoga Nidra, breath work, gate restructuring, because in firefighters, military, we carry these rucks. We forgot how to walk the right way with our head held high and our our arms swinging. We forget these things and long-term that can destroy your body. So we ran these two proofs of two proof of concept camps. I think I was able to run these two camps for under $3,000. I had donations from a couple of small charities, like to buy the t-shirts and get them embroidered, do the right things from the marketing perspectives and the business brain. If I'm going to do this, I have to do it right. You're doing this all during COVID. Which yeah. is probably the most mind-blowing thing to me of all, because everything's shutting down, everything's hard to do. Except it's for golf. To, except for golf, because it's outside. And oh. just the whole idea that you're doing this in the middle of COVID, which various places had different things going on. But to me, that's insane, because that's really tough. But you did it, and I think it worked probably a lot because... People needed to get out. They've been cooped up, not able to do their normal life. And probably, hey, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. And you're actually the first person to put it that way. So I'm already thinking, man, he's right. I didn't even think of that. I was thinking more of it's going to be easy because it's COVID and golf courses are open. I didn't, I've never framed it that way. So thank you. So Early on, as I'm running through these ideas last year, I like reach out to Milwaukee Fire Department because I'm thinking, all right, let's get some vets involved. Let's get some first responders involved. I reach out to, I don't know how, but I get in touch with Milwaukee Fire Department's chief firefighter, Chief Lipsky. And I'm fortunate enough that they were the first like group that I went to. I could have gone to the police. I could have gone to the sheriffs. I could have went to EMT or emergency room. He is so supportive of what we're doing. And I see now from an organizational structure, if your leadership, it's just like in the military, if your leadership buys in, the chances of success for your subordinates is so much higher. And it's that camaraderie in the firehouse of they're a team. It's different for police officers and sheriffs. They're in a squad car. Sometimes they're alone. Maybe they're with one partner. The only time they interact is in that morning roll call. It's just a different environment. So vibe. I've, I've, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen it. And I didn't know all these things. The first responder world is even more foreign to me than the military world was when I joined it as a 26 year old, but I'm learning. And as I started putting this together, so he was all in, he was like, let us know what you need. They sent four firefighters. Now two of them are on my advisory committee. I just met with him today about some more long-term stuff we want to do with like assessments to see you need the data to be able to keep growing and get funding and get more participation. So that's a whole other realm that we're in. But so that MBA has been paying off uh, <laughs> in ways you didn't imagine. And small business ownership too. Yeah. So Then I started thinking one thing I personally didn't enjoy from the VA or not from the VA, but not disparage the VA, my personal opinion of counseling one-on-one in a sterile environment. And I've heard it from enough veterans is that some of us just don't connect. And especially if you are a veteran who's been in combat and you're 
dealing with a civilian or even another veteran who's never been in combat. There's just these things in life where it's better to understand it if you've been there. It's just life. Just makes it easier. And I started thinking, what does it look like if I, when I'm not running these camps, right, as this thing's growing next 18, I want to do one-on-one counseling, and I, but I want it different. And then I started thinking, well, great. If I'm going to do that, the business part of me and the, the smart part is telling me, you got to go back to school and you got to get some type of credential. Luckily enough, I was able to tap into Voc Rehab because I'm switching careers, even though I have is awesome. I've almost maxed out my GI bill. I haven't used all of it. And now it doesn't work for me. It works for me, but I I don't want to go to corporate America. I want to go do this thing to help all of these people. I need a degree. I started with clinical psych for a semester too much. And I'm thinking as I'm going through learning the DSM five, like, I don't need to learn about pica and I don't need to learn about bulimia. And I just want to fo- I'm, I'm being ignorant in the moment of, I just want to focus on PTSD and depression and that's it. That's all I'm ever going to deal with because I haven't had the experiences yet. So I, I switched over to social work. So now I'm getting my master's in social work. I'm, I'm almost halfway through the two-year program and it has been this, well, next 18 has been such an amazing thing. The, the growth and education that I have received over the last 10 months has fundamentally changed my life. I have learned so much. I didn't know what self, I didn't know what the word self-care was. I didn't know what moral injury was. We could go down the clinical list of these things of holistic treatments, CBT, brain spotting. I'm in a placement now where I'm working with some veteran doctors, psychiatrists and psychologists, and a couple of others on their team. Most of them worked at the VA and they didn't like the way it was working. So now they have this pilot program going. It's very heavy clinical. All the other interns with me are for psychology. So I'm like this, like the bastard child again, right? The redheaded, who's this guy who wants to do social work? Look like the others. Yeah. And it's funny because I'm also the only veteran in the interns. Everyone else is a civilian and that's great. It's good that they're seeing this, but I have learned, I don't even know where, we could probably have 10 podcasts if you wanted to talk about things that I've learned. And all of this has inwardly been applied to myself too, because now that I'm off these meds, oh, there's other hurdles that you weren't ready for that you didn't even know existed because now you have your brain back and now you have these things called emotions. Yeah, those are hard to feel when you've uh, heavily medicated them. Yeah. And now you have all this repressed stuff from your deployment and your time in the military. And oh, wait, let's go even further because we're learning about it. Programming from a childhood and how it exacerbated moments in the military that led to moral injury. I will. I'm just going to plug that we have a fantastic interview all about moral injury. Go back in our podcast and, and go listen to it. Because I learned a lot. I I knew about moral injury. I had a chaplain way back in 2005 that was big about moral injury. And he would talk about it. And he's an awesome guy. And I would just talk with him, not as even as a chaplain, just he'd come around and talk to people. It's just a people person. And he talked about this. And it was a new concept to me. And it's really took in a while for it to really germinate where people like get the concept of moral injury as opposed to PTSD. Those two things can exist at the same time. That's okay. But a lot of times the real challenge is about moral injury that that makes it so hard. And so we've interviewed and there's a great podcast here on the coming home well channel about that. And I recommend folks listen to it, especially the folks that aren't familiar with the concept. You've probably more familiar than anybody now, but It's still, I always learn new things when I talk to people because you're like, oh, I didn't think of it that way or different insights and different ways of looking at things. So I'm just segue. People know that I I jump off topic real quick. So you learn about these things. You're going to be a licensed clinical social worker. You're in the program. You recognize that you have something to offer the other veterans now because of these experiences. And you started Next 18, but we haven't really talked what Next 18 does. We've talked about how you go and you involve therapy and what is Next 18? 
at its core, Next 18 is an environment where veterans and first responders can come on a golf course for three and a half days. And I won't get too much into the the minutia of it because we want it to be a little bit of a surprise, right? Come with just an open mind and a willingness to grow. And we work from day one moment they walk into the day they leave, building them up with some resources to allow them the environment to, as a collective group, if they feel comfortable enough to share, process, accept some of these things that have happened, understand that what has happened to them in the past is just a small part of them and not their whole being. And hopefully by the time the camp is over, they've been given so many resources and now they've got this network that they can leave the camp and start to take the next step, move beyond the trauma, the moral injury, the PTSD, the the things that have been roadblocks that they're starting to understand. And we do that through golf because golf inherently, you are outdoors. You are technically already in a bubble because you're on a place removed from the real world. You're almost always with other people, typically other people that you've chosen. And even if it's people you get paired up with, you end up nine out of 10 times, you end up getting along with the people you're golfing with. And it's just like a community in and of itself. Golf teaches a lot of mindfulness, breath work, your pre-shot routine. If you watch the pros, every time they walk up to a shot, they are doing the same thing. Eventually it becomes second nature. Well, eventually doing box breathing or four, six, eight breathing, it becomes second nature and you are able to use it because you feel in your body, oh, my chest is tightening up. This is triggering me. Whatever is triggering me in my life is happening. Oh, what's that thing that next 18 taught me? (sighs) Just breathe, man. Just be there. Just give yourself the two seconds to take that deep breath and go from emotional to rational and get back in the moment and get back into control. So you can have less explosions, less turmoil, less trouble with your family, your spouse, your coworkers, the person that cuts you off in the road, you are less likely to get in trouble. I always find golf to be a interesting sport and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue just for a minute. My wife is exceptionally talented at everything she does. It drives me crazy. If she paints, she masters it. She does a thousand hobbies because she gets bored, because she masters it so quickly that she's, oh, okay, I'm going to learn how to engrave wood. Boom. Like she can do it anytime now and or she paints or whatever. And I said, okay, she's really good. We have a thousand projects up in the garage, like knitting, yarn, cross-stitch, paint, pottery, jewelry. You name a thing where somebody does, she's done it. And she gets bored. And one day she says, you know, I want to learn how to play piano. I said, okay. Pianos are expensive. We got her an upright, got for free. Piano and golf, I find a lot of parallels. In fact, I've been trying to get her to play golf for this exact reason. You can play the piano pretty well, pretty quickly. If you're, you you practice and you spend the time, but then to become exceptional at it is a massive uh, multi multitude jump between playing good to being great. And so she's so used to being good at something like pretty quickly that she gets bored. She's been playing piano for like six years and she practices. And we, now we have a grand piano for her to play on. Because she needed, to, she was playing it enough. I said uh, she wanted to buy a, a big piano, and I said, "Hey, look, you've been playing for like two years. That's the longest you've done anything." And so I've been trying to get her to play golf because it's the same thing. Like you can play okay pretty quickly. You can probably go to your four day uh, camp and actually play pretty well, but you're not going to the pros, and you're not going to win a tournament. You're not going to be in that top. You might be exceptionally just gifted, but it's hard to get great. It's easy to get proficient. And that's where I draw that parallel. I've been trying to get her to go play because I think that she would enjoy it because you can't master it immediately. It's like piano or a musical instrument. It's the same sort of thing. 
And I always find that parallel amazing because like I enjoy golf. I'm not good at it. I recognize this, but I've also had four shoulder surgeries. And so I can't hit it the way I used to when I was in high school and used to rocket it and be able to pull it back and get that swing going. And you get that club head speed and all those things that make it like long distance. So I said, ah, I'll just really get really good at irons because it doesn't require as much. And my friends are like, oh, you can't hit it as far. And I'm like, yeah, that's not a problem. I'll, I'll, I'll be right up with you in a minute. And, yeah, and it's those type of things that are great analogies to overcoming some of the challenges we have as veterans. And that's what I love about golf as an analogy is, yeah, you're all getting to the same place eventually. Yes. And how you get there doesn't matter as much as the journey to get to it. When we, so exactly. So we give the lessons, right? They get the golf lessons first at the end. Usually at the end of the day, we, we then play 18 holes of golf and exactly what you're saying. The golf is not competitive. The golf is set up in a scramble format. So all of them can participate. You're going to have inherently the, the men, the 25 year old vet that's there is going to outdrive just about everyone. But some of the women are really good at the short game and putting. And even if the guys are spraying their drives and the woman's 150 yards down the center of the fairway, she's still effective. So, yep, you all hit your ball and you all come back to the same spot. So in four and a half hours, when they're all golfing, four hours and 20 minutes, they're together. They're just going to pick up their balls. And each day of the camp, having that golf knowledge and the background in it and seeing things like each day of the camp, we were switching up the foursomes. So everyone got to play with everyone. And then the final day watching who are the couple of good ones, who are the ones that need help. We, I, I, I put them together in three little teams and they go play a little scramble format against each other. And we have prizes just, just to do that. And, but the biggest thing and what we're looking at moving forward, right? We've proven this is a thing. It works. And this whole winter has been, oh, it does work. I'm only 10 months into this game. Technically, all the work that we've been doing and everyone, we've got camps in 2022. We're, we're getting ready. We're gearing up. We're at, we're working with Kohler, Sand Valley, Aaron Hills. These are like three of the top 25 public courses in the country. And I'm fortunate enough to be in Wisconsin and be within two hours of all of them. These camps cost money, right? So I'm having to navigate funding. We're still new. So how do I ask someone to work with us? We're, we're having to figure out, luckily, the business side, and I can work with these courses. Hey, how can we make this work? I don't want you to donate all this to us. I The business side of me hates that model of nonprofits. Give. How can this be advantageous for both of us long-term? Putting together an advisory committee, getting an outing set up, getting all of these things because it's a thing yeah. and it's happening and there has been so much attraction and interest from veterans and first responders. And Chief Lipsky wants to send firefighters to every one of our camps. And how do we, like, I and school and my internship and being a good partner with the woman that I've been with for the past 15 months now, like. <laughs> Being a victim of your own success sometimes. Yeah, it is really teaching me self-care. And it is really teaching me how to tackle my biggest demon in life of never asking for help. I can't, if I see next 18 being national and 20 to 30 camps a year and these assessments, right. Being used for, I'm like, I'm already in future mind planning my dissertation for recreational therapy being used to treat moral injury with all the data that I'll have, the anonymous data, but be in the moment, take your time with these camps. You're still recovering. You're still dealing with you. The only way I can give these resources to the, the participants is if I'm good. Can't help anybody if you're not able to help yourself. And that, yeah. that is, I see that all the time and lots of, it's, it's the same thing when you're a soldier 
and you get injured and the medic comes and he gets shot. Now you got two people that require four. And that's yep. actually why uh, they prefer to wound as opposed to kill, because then you've taken up so many more resources. Yeah. So, Matt, how do people find out about Next 18? How would they go donate? What's, what's your schedule look like for the, the rest of the year? What does that look yep. like? So tentatively right now, we are planning four camps that could change just because funding and how we're structuring everything. And I'm cognizant of that. I'm cognizant of taking our time with this and growing the model. But if people want to reach out to us, next18.org, N-E-X-T-1-8.org. That's super easy to remember. Yeah. Next 18, like next 18 holes.org. Yeah. Super easy mm-hmm. to find. If you Google it, it's really easy to find as well. Yep. You're on the right path with that too in the next 18 holes, right? The next hurdle, the next challenge, the next mission, the next 18 holes. Every, like golf, every challenge in life is different. Every hurdle in life is different. Golf will never, the one thing I love about golf is I have never played the same game of golf. I played 120 plus rounds of golf in 2020. Not one round, not one hit was identical to the next. Been on the same course. You, yeah, yeah. That teaches you so much about life. That so the website. We're also ramp revamping the website, right? I getting more information, getting out more of the mental health aspect, and we're going to start updating in the next couple of weeks with the camps. But if, if you want to register as a veteran or first responder, you can always go in, apply. Just apply to any camp and fill it out right now. I'll have your contact information. I'm going to reach out to you, let you know I got it. But we can we can cross the hurdle of or the what camp you actually want to come to as we get this figured out in the next couple of weeks and months. But also one of the things we're looking at early on is because funding, how do we make it so it's easier on next 18 right now? So if we have veterans or first responders that can afford to get themselves to our camp in Wisconsin and that's great. We'll take care of the golf. If it's an overnight camp, some of our camps are day camps. So those are more geared towards for the locals. It's just, it's the resources. It's being able to, the vision, right. Of what I have and what I want these things to be, but I know I can't be Semper Fi fun tomorrow. I just don't have Bob Parsons of PXG as a sponsor, which by the way, Hey, Bob, like we do golf too, just and connecting with these resources. If you're in the golf community, if you how do we work with TaylorMade? How do we work with Titleist? How do we work with Callaway? How do we work with clothing brands? There's all these things we want to do, but again, I'm just trying to be in the moment, enjoy the ride. School is really almost priority one. It has to be. I need to you, get but the organization yeah, is doing right. their things, and yeah. if you are part of an organization, but you're not the organization. And that's important to keep those things separate. These are things that we do and you got to compartmentalize and you're in the crawl phase. You've been doing it for a year. You've had four camps. Uh, You're out in Wisconsin. That's where you're getting uh, your feet wet and figuring it out. And that's really important because there's a lot of organizations that do a lot of things and they try to do too much too fast and they don't do it. And while it may be fun, it's not really achieving the goals, which is it's a sneaky thing. A lot of these groups like yours do, which is smart, is, hey, we're going to play golf. But we're also going to make sure you have all these resources and tools and camaraderie and, and tools in your toolbox that go along with it. So you're not just learning how to get out of a sand trap, literally. You're also learning how to get out of a sand trap figuratively with these various tools and resources and breathing techniques and how to get access to these other things, which is a great analogy, I think, in that you're overcoming these obstacles that you weren't necessarily aware that you're going to be in or that you're having challenges with. And so that crawl phase is so important. And so if you want to go donate, if you're like, I love golf and I think veterans golfing and and veterans golfing while learning uh, some really cool stuff, go to next18.org, click on the donate button. If you're in the golf industry, get in touch with Matt. It's super easy. Just go to next18.org. I think you have something here. I think you've been doing some really fundamental changes. Um, and, And 
you have a niche that's really important. We have a lot of, of groups that do stuff for disabled folks. There's a lot of uh, sports locally. I, I do a lot of stuff with wintergreen adaptive sports. They're not just veterans, which is really kind of cool. Anybody who has a disability can go learn how to ski. Like I have seen blind people mm. that are wheelchair bound that can't walk, but they can go skiing. And they have people that go in front and back and all these. It's amazing to watch. In fact, they've taught my daughter how to ski when she was seven. And her ski instructor from when she was seven and she's 12 now, so this five, six years, she was a young lady in high school then, and now she's a school teacher, and we still keep in touch. It's these sort of like lifelong connections that you do with these organizations. Yeah, they're doing disabled, but we're doing veterans that are having you know, challenges, dis- disabilities that are visible and not visible. And I think you have a tremendous niche in that, and getting that sort of uh, help at the same time, even if you may not need it now, because you were doing awesome for four years, you thought. That's sort of the bigger point I I, I do want to draw out in that, yeah, you might think you're doing awesome, but there's going to be a point where your transition for five, 10 years, you may not be doing awesome. And that's when these resources are like even more valuable. Yeah. And our resources are so much more than just like breath work and just mindfulness. Like we focus on mindfulness, resilience training, moral injury, PTSD processing, symptom management, sleep therapy, how to reshift the way you sleep at night. So much of these resources that I'm learning that my, and I'm not the one giving almost any of the instruction for this. We have, my board president is really well connected in Milwaukee in the mental health space. And he's been in, he's got his own nonprofit for inner city youth and mental health. Like the woman who did our moral injury presentation is the woman that I work underneath at my internship. She's a a veteran and she's literally writing her dissertation on moral injury and police officers. So we are looking like I mental health is our thing. Golf is the, the modality through which we do it. We are a mental health nonprofit. And we, I am so focused on those resources almost more than I am on the golf. I mean, and the golf have, is a good, uh, yeah. you know, it's a good draw. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and you're going to learn how to play golf too, right? Yeah. Yep. You're going to have, you're going to have fun. You are, we've run two camps now. I have not seen one person walk out of the camp with, it brought me to tears because camp one went week one, week two, I had off week three, I had camp two. I'm learning to space out camps because the emotional ride, both camps brought me to tears when I left. And when I got home after that, both camps with my my girlfriend and we went out to dinner that night, it's just the dump of, I think I just helped a dozen people. I think these people are going to be, they're going to be good. They're going to be okay. It's my way of healing a lot of the stuff from my deployment, my, my moral injuries. That is often, if not always the case with when we help others, it's, there's a lot of studies and, and I always find it amazing. I read a lot of studies. I'm, I'm a computer science guy, but I read a lot of different stuff. And I found that the number one way, and this is backed by science, in order to make a friend, doing a favor for somebody else is actually the best way to make a a friend. And you think it the other way around, I don't want to bother them, et cetera. But when you ask someone to come, hey, come play golf with me. I I need somebody to fill out that foursome. You're asking them to do something for you, but actually that is the number one way to make that connection with other people. And so I always find that's an interesting dichotomy. It's not what we expect people to operate in. So we've talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about your deployment. We talked about your post-deployment and how you were rocking it with your business until you weren't and the challenges and the insights that you came out with. And then, hey, next 18, great idea, sort of is still evolving get in on the ground floor before it's really big and hard to get into. What should I have asked you about, but didn't? I think the most important thing maybe would be to extrapolate a little more on the, the mental health and the stigma, because 
as veterans, as first responders, we are typically in a position where in our training and in our field, we are told that we are alphas. We are the best at what we do. We can handle anything. We don't need to worry about emotions sometimes. Unfortunately, no human that I've ever met can tackle everything that life throws at them without help and without accepting that if you need help, you need to say something. So understanding that we need to get to a place where this stigma of mental illness and being the macho guy, like it's not, it, it's toxic. It's not conducive to us being our best selves and being for the families around us and our friends and, and the, the worlds with which we live in our own selves. Like it's okay to ask for help. Not only I okay to ask for help. It's actually a really good sign of strength yep. and, and character to say, Hey, I need help in business. When you need to do something, you hire people, you get people, you work with partners, you do all these things. And we go, Oh, that guy's a great businessman. But when you're having challenges with any other part of your life, we go, Oh no, you need to do it yourself. That's insane. Not asking for help is insane. Like I'm not a plumber. I'm not an electrician. I would flood my house and I would electrocute myself. I know these things. So when I need help, I pick up the phone and I call the electrician. I call the plumber and I ask for help and I get help. We don't think twice about that. We think that is normal. We think that's appropriate. And then mental health, we go, no, no, just deal with it. No, that's insane. If we had a broken arm, we don't go, ah, oh, you just need to suck that up. No, you go and you go to the doctor and they put a cast on it and you get healthy and you go to physical therapy. Like I've had more surgeries than anybody should probably ever have. Mm. I've learned the importance of physical therapy because I was a young, strapping, uh, motivated guy. And the moment they said, you can go back to full activities, oh, I was back at it even beforehand. That's why I've had four soldier surgeries because I was an idiot who didn't follow through and do all the physical therapy and all the recovery stuff. Now I've yeah. learned, take your time, go ask for help, go get the help and use the help. And then you become stronger as a result. And you don't have to go back three, four times. It actually, my last surgery on my shoulder was a special forces ranger doctor who normally does like Delta force. And he's Tyler, I'm going to do this surgery. But if you mess it up, the only thing we're going to be able to do is fuse your shoulder. So it's in there and it doesn't move. He says, there's nothing left. I said, okay. And he goes, no, I'm serious. And he really imparted. I remember this conversation and it's probably been 15 years. I remember it like yesterday because my shoulder was so loose. I'd go to open the doorknob and come out of joint just from that twisting motion. And he's look, you got to do it. You got to do the recovery. You got it. You got to protect it. You got to do these things, but you got to get the help. And I, and it struck me. And I've always used that as a parallel to mental health. We don't think twice about somebody going to physical therapy. We don't think twice about somebody calling a plumber or an electrician or whatever technical help you need. Guys, go get help. And if somebody around you thinks that you need help, guess what? You actually do. Whether or not you think you do or not, if the people around you, and this is the definition of mental health, isn't impacting your social, economic, financial, social relationships, all those things. If you're having a problem in one of them, that is the key definition in all the DSM criteria for, yeah, you have a problem, whatever the problem is. So if someone around you is saying, go get help, guess what? You should probably go talk to somebody. You may not agree at the time, but eventually you'll say, oh, okay, my spouse, my girlfriend, my mom, my dad, whoever it is. Yeah, I see what they were talking about. Because if we wait for ourselves, we end up crawling into the front door of our house and, and just breaking down because uh, we didn't we thought we could do it all. And we're a superhero and uh, we're macho man. And it doesn't work that way. Yep, 100 percent. Everything you said is accurate. And mental health is how we all have mental health. And I've been trying to explain that to people in that. That's why it's so important. We only treat veterans and first responders, but, and there's a reason for that, but 
they go home and they share the resources with their spouses and their families and the family is happier because everyone deals with it. And the one last thing I want to say is one thing I learned recently in my placement, my, one of my supervisors put this on a bunch of the interns. If you ever want to look at it, look at this way, ask, ask yourself two questions and rate it on a scale of one to 10, one being never 10 being all the time. First of all, one on a scale of one to 10, how many times, how confident do you feel in telling someone else that they need help? They need to take care of themselves. Okay. Number two, on that same scale, now, how often do you listen to that for yourself? And that's it. I promise you, more often than not, people will say the first one is about an eight or a nine because we all do it. Man, you look burned out. You need to take a break. When was the last time you took a break? Right? That's it. It's very easy to give advice as opposed to take it. Yes, that is a, that's a fact. Yeah. So, yeah. We've been talking with Matt McDonald. He's the executive director of Next 18. They combine golf and some therapy, not really therapy, tools, mental health resources to get people to think about all the different resources that are available and get folks together, treats mental military veterans and first responders. He's out in the Wisconsin area, but they're hoping to expand out as they expand and as they develop and get some more uh, sponsors. Matt, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. It, it is very profound and it's very real. And, and it's very important. I think Next 18 is a really awesome opportunity, both for you and for the veterans that you're interacting with. And, and I think it's a very important niche that needs to be filled. So thanks for coming on Coming Home Well. But more importantly, thanks for doing everything that you're doing with Next 18. Thanks, Tyler. And thank you to Coming Home Well for giving me this opportunity to speak for a little bit and for what you're doing as well. The VSOs need organizations like you, right? We're all here to do the same thing. We want to do the same thing. The easiest way is to learn about one another and for the participants to learn we exist. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Coming Home Well with Dr. Tyler Pieron. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. Follow us on Instagram at ComingHomeWell underscore BTS or on Twitter at ComingHomeWell. Thanks again. And until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.